Hello and welcome to another episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. In this episode, we're going to talk about assistive technology. You know, it's hard to imagine that only 20 or 30 years ago, when we considered assistive technology for educating special needs children, we were talking mostly about special pencil grips or possibly a typewriter or maybe a cassette tape recorder that the student could use to record the day's lesson. Even with the advent of the desktop computer and the laptop, most educators didn't consider them useful for education simply because it took sometimes up to 10 minutes for the computers to boot up before they could be used. But now with tablets and instant-on technology, there are dozens of possible devices available and hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of different apps for any kind of need. So with all these choices and devices and programs, how do we as parents figure out which ones will work best for our kids? And for that matter, how does a teacher wade through all those devices and apps, not just for our kids, but also for all the kids that he or she might have to work with in the classroom? Well, on the podcast today is a person who can help us do just that, because it's her job. So we're talking with Kindy Segovia, who is the Assistive Technology Coordinator for Kent Intermediate School District. Kindy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Great. Now, you started out as an occupational therapist in special education. How did you wind up becoming interested in specializing in assistive technology? As a new therapist coming out of school, uh, I worked in a rehabilitation center in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and was a part of a spinal cord injury and traumatic brain injury team. And at that time, we were just at the infancy stages of using computers with patients in that environment, and that was primarily to uh, get them doing some recreational games and some very early-stage environmental control. And in working with the rehabilitation engineers in that environment, I was very interested in that aspect of our rehabilitation process for patients. I made my way to West Michigan and worked in a hospital and rehab setting for several years in pediatrics and neonatal, and then found my way into school therapy about 20 years ago. And as a school therapist uh, working in a district, there really is no one, was no one at the time, who had the ability to address needs of students who had uh, physical barriers, primarily communication barriers and other barriers to their educational process, thinking of technology as a solution. So I used a little bit of my background from my spinal cord injury and tra- traumatic brain injury days and dabbled in some switch access and computer access and communication access for kids. Mm-hmm. And then in my location, our intermediate school district put together an assistive technology team from area districts to just brainstorm about what area needs were, how the ISD could support that, and as a part of that process over the course of about a year and a half, the ISD decided to hire a person as a county-level resource for assistive, assistive technology, and I was the lucky person to land in that job. Ah, so you've been actually with this sort of thing for quite a while. For Not quite just, a while, yeah. yes. And there's been so many so many changes, too, as far as assistive technology goes. D- dramatic changes. When I was uh, initially introduced to it back in the 1980s, we really were doing 
uh, programming at a very basic level using firmware cards and giant uh, servers to even allow access to a simple, what we remember as things like a, a Pong computer game. Wow. It was very simplistic and took lots of time and hours even to get to that level. And now we, and that was primarily with patients or students who had very significant levels of disability. Right. And primarily looking at physical access, not um, social access, not communication access, not interaction. And now we have fast-forwarded to um, 2013, and we are able to do tremendous things for all kinds of students and adults with a variety of disabilities on our phones and our tablet, iPads, and Android uh, devices. So it's come miles in 30 years. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I can remember, um, you know, computers taking up whole rooms and things like that. And then when the Apple computer first came out in the early 80s, it was a desktop version, and everyone was just astonished by that idea. Yes, that was that was a big idea. It cost a lot of money, and it took up a lot of space in your house. <laughs> it and, sure did. And uh, now most of us have not only uh, gone by way of laptop or portable tablet, you know, we've we've gotten rid of our online phones in many cases, and we are completely portable. Right, right. And as I was going to say, um, you know, with the introduction of the tablet computer and all that, with the the entire world of assisted technology has really changed as well, and it almost exploded because it seems like there's a million new apps every day. How um, how could a parent even try to comprehend, you know, what's all available? And it's uh, it's a pretty daunting process, even for those of us who work in the field. It's a daunting process. We get questions all the time from parents and educators. What what's the best app for reading? What's the best app for math? And that, of course, as you said, there's so many apps, there's no answer for that. Uh, we are currently, at this point in time, in the Apple world, we are at over 800,000 apps for iPads and iPhones. And in the Android world, there are equally as many just divided over a multitude of devices. So we direct parents to use the same process that we would use try and uh, whittle it down to something that might be useful. Mm-hmm. And that primarily is targeting a few favorite websites. There are uh, very credible sources uh, out there that post online that review apps and categorize apps and give uh, lots of information about what an app will do, what its target goal is, and who the audience might be. So we go to those sources. Those people are already doing the work for us. Mm-hmm. So I often give parents a few sites to go look at potential app reviews and look for what it is they want their child to be able to do with an iPad and then use those sources to help direct some apps. Um, the other strategy, of course, many people are familiar with this, is to use any free version first if it's available because that gives you a chance, even if it's a very limited window into the full capacity of an app, gives you an idea if that app is going to meet your need, if the quality of the app is up to par, and if it's going to be worth even $0.99 cents or $1.99, those apps can add up in a hurry. So oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. We always want to make sure we're, we're looking at free first. 
Right. Yeah, because that was uh, that was our problem, of course, is we uh, started looking at so many of them. And you're right. Thankfully, there are free versions of a lot of them. Because even even the ones that we thought would work, <laughs> we wound up spending a lot more than we even realized we were. Yes, absolutely. So what, um, as far as, you know, determining what kind of assistive technology would be needed for a specific... Uh, a specific uh, disability or a specific learning challenge. I mean, I'm, sh- you know, with, with the, uh, so many apps available, what's probably the best criteria of what a parent should be looking for as far as finding the right app? Uh, well, we use with apps the same process we use with every other piece of assistive technology. And this is true for our low-tech, no-tech items. Uh, you know, you and I had talked previously about how in the world of assistive technology, the legal definition includes the word anything. Well, right. that is pretty broad. And so uh, even for some sensory strategies or pencil grips and adapted paper, uh, all of those low-tech kinds of items, we really encourage both parents and educators to use something that's called the SET process, S-E-T-T, and that stands for um, student, environment, task, and team. So if I'm looking individually for a student, say my child or a student that I'm working with, or I'm working with a team and the parent is, of course, included in that team, then we would take a look at what what do we know about that student? What are their strengths? What are the areas of concern that we're trying to target? What do we know about the environment that we're trying to make a change? And that's very important because if it's in a classroom, that's a very different environment than working on homework at home or working on communication at home. Uh, If we're looking at some of the extra times during a student's day, say lunch or recess, or maybe even in the home environment, there's times when that child is in child care or at grandma's house. Those environment considerations are very important. And then, and for iPads and apps, one of the environmental considerations that is uh, often not considered but very important is, does the environment have access to Wi-Fi? Mm-hmm. Uh, many of our apps rely on that, and we don't think about the environment. Oh, yeah, we're going to use this in the classroom or we're going to use this at grandma's house, well, guess what? Grandma doesn't have Wi-Fi. Yeah. Uh, so that those considerations are very important. And then the, the third thing we look at is what are the very specific tasks we want this child to do. So if it's my child in my home, what is it that I want? Do I want them to be able to practice math facts? Mm-hmm. Do I want them to be able to do some writing and then send that piece of writing to their teacher? Do I want them to be able to communicate more clearly with me about their wants and needs and desires and jokes and all of that? Exactly what is the task, and that needs to be very specific. Only then, after determining those three things, can we really look at the last column of tools. Based on all of that, what would, what is the right kind of app? What is the right kind of tool that we need? And maybe we've come to the determination that it's not even an iPad in some environments. Maybe it's something else. So we'll use an app for some things, and then we'll try and duplicate that in another way in a different environment for a different task. Right. And as, you know, everyone being focused right now on the tablet and iPads and things like that, there's still a whole amount of technology out there that is not tablet-based, but it can still be used. Absolutely. I... um, was in a meeting this week on a student who we've considered, uh, or the team has considered, including the parents, uh, using an iPad. This is a, a child who has some 
verbal speech. He's very bright, engaging, uh, social, wants to interact in, in his world. But his speech and his articulation is very often difficult to understand. So we've been looking at, or the team has been looking at, uh, putting a communication app on an iPad and having him support his verbal communication in that way. And what we found is that uh, in some environments, what is actually working better for him is a paper-based communication system because of a few motor difficulties he has. On an iPad, he often touches the wrong spot, and he ends up in the wrong place in his communication and loses his train of thought about what he intended to say and, of course, becomes frustrated, as we all would. Uh, So that's an indication where we really... Uh, it's very common to jump to an iPad for a solution uh, such as that, and yet really in some environments for that student, a, a paper-based system was much more functional and successful for him. So we really do need to not jump to the, we call it the, the shiny object of the day. Right. <laughs> That makes sense. Yeah, because I know, and it's also when you're working on either an iPad or a laptop and you get into the wrong spot, sometimes it can be a real challenge to get back to where you were. Absolutely. And we don't want to put any more barriers in the way of students who are struggling than they already have. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, is it important, you think, for parents to work closely with the child's educators for the assistive technology and see how it's used in the classroom? Uh, absolutely. It's- essential, and uh, we really, it's very difficult to move forward without that, so we do always love that, look for that, want to be partners in this process, Uh, and of course there are often times when we disagree. Educators might see the child in a different light at school than the parents see at home, and it's, you know, we're not in each other's environment, so it's hard to, um, you know, really see, see the student in as a whole person in all of those ways. So we need, as educators, we need the parent input. And I always tell our teams that despite sometimes our disagreements about the right solution, the parents know their child better than anybody else. And we need to make sure that we take all of those um, pieces of information into account. And then we need to teach each other. So we often are pretty good at teaching the teacher or the therapist or the paraprofessional in the environment the tool to use with the child, and we leave out teaching the parents how to use that device or that item or that app with the child uh, outside of our school environment, and we need to remember that we are all a team, all equal players at the table, and we need to help each other. And I have found, honestly, John, that many of our parents, because they own iPads and computers themselves, uh, every, almost everybody these days has a smartphone, that they, they can teach us quite a few things about how to implement something or can direct us to maybe an app if we're looking at a tablet that might be helpful for their child. And we need to take that in. Just because we happen to work in the building uh, and maybe are assigned to a certain role does not mean we have all the information at hand. Right. And I can speak from personal experience, too. Sometimes teachers have been able to show me that uh, my child is capable of doing a lot more than I thought in a particular area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's great. We do, we do need, because we do see that child in a very different light in all of the environments, we need to make sure that we are, you know, taking all of that into account. Right. Now, as far as, uh, you know, if educators who might be listening to this for ideas, what do you think would be the best way to set up an assistive technology in a classroom setting? 
Um, well, there's a couple things that are really important. Uh, the first thing is to remember, once we've decided on something to try or to use, the, 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 the inclination to jump too quickly ahead uh, with a tool or to give up on it too quickly, I see that all the time. We need to remember that all of our students, when they're in school, they're working very hard to accomplish just the school tasks throughout the day and the week. And when we throw a piece of assistive technology in the mix, low-tech or high-tech, it becomes something new to learn, no matter how fun and engaging it is. Right. It is something new to learn, and we, we cannot expect a student to learn a new device, a new tool, a new piece of technology in the midst of a complex educational or academic task. So we need to make sure that we build time in somewhere to give that child access to the technology, using it in a very friendly, successful way with tasks that we know that student can already accomplish and that aren't a challenge. And once we start to see that and start to build some independence, then we can start to insert some of those educational and academic tasks, but not moving too quickly. Uh, we don't, I see very often, we don't give kids enough time to adapt to the new technology. The other thing that we often forget is that we need to include the opinions of the child. Ah. We, as adults, have in mind what we feel is the best solution, and we might be right, it might be the best solution, but if we don't have buy-in from that child, uh, then we might as well, you know, pick, pick something else. Even iPads, uh, I, I like to have kids involved in the discussion, and no matter how young they are, because they're always excited about getting a new piece of technology to use, mm-hmm. uh, I always look them in the eye and say, you know what, the work is still the work is still the work. Right. So this is going to be fun, and this might do math in an engaging way or a fun way for you, or this might you know, be fun to write your journal entry on an iPad, but you still have to write the sentences, you still have to remember your math facts, you still have to, uh, you know, practice your science skills, it's it's not going to make the work necessarily easier, it's just going to give you a better way to get it accomplished. And we're not clear with kids about that. We make it seem like it's an, an automatic fix. Right. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is, of course, kids immediately go for the games. Yes, Absolutely. <laughs> As don't we all. Yes. You know, when I put iPads in front of teachers or if I'm in a team meeting and we're having passing the iPad around to look at an app, people love to hit that home button and find out what else fun right. is in the device. Right. So. Where's Angry Birds? Where's Minecraft? Where's all that Absolutely. stuff? Absolutely. <laughs> sure. Ab- absolutely. So so yeah, we need to be very aware of that and um, be very clear with our kids about what the goal and what the use is, what the purpose is, uh, that it is not to have Woohoo! I get access to Angry Birds. Right. It is to to accomplish something, and those expectations are going to be there. Right. And, of course, getting back to your learning curve, too, I mean, we all have a tendency to forget that, okay, it took me a couple of years to get comfortable using a computer as well. Yes. Right. A- absolutely. For anybody who's ever had to transition between operating systems, so if you're a Windows person and all of a sudden you have an Apple computer, or if you were an Apple person and now uh, your employer has put a Windows on your uh, desktop on your desk, it takes you time to adjust to the new, the new tools at your fingertips. They might be great, 
but it, there is, it's going to slow your work down for a little while, and we need to remember that with our kids as well. One of my best examples of that is um, we are really excited about voice dictation, and we've had voice dictation software, Dragon Naturally Speaking, around for a long time, mm-hmm. and now we have voice dictation apps. We have Dragon T- Dictate on our uh, iPads and iPhones. There are other voice dictation apps that allow us to talk and have the device type out our words for us. That's a great solution for a lot of kids and adults as well. But we need to remember that dictating is uh, can be a difficult process to learn. Oh, yeah. Very different from writing. And if I'm already struggling with writing and I'm doing dictation as an alternative method, then I not only struggle with writing, but now I have to learn dictation on top of a difficult writing process. We tend to give up on voice dictation too quickly because we don't allow enough time for a child to learn how to do that effectively. Right. Yeah, we just discovered, in fact, that uh, uh, on our Apple computers, we have a program called Notepad. It's a free thing that comes with it, and it has a dictation feature built into it. It does. It's fabulous. Right. right. Yeah. And, but as you said, the, you know, my son was fooling around with it the other day, and the problem is, if he doesn't speak clearly, it skips the word. Yes. Now, the nice thing is it leaves a blank where the word should be, but nonetheless, it's hard. And then a yes. couple of times, um, it came up with some words that, let's just say, it's not in a child's vocabulary <laughs> and shouldn't be in a child's vocabulary, but because it couldn't understand what he was saying. Right. So, And then I, ha- I had to go in and uh, quickly delete a couple of things. <laughs> so there is there is a learning curve to that whole thing. Right. Yeah. Nothing is nothing is a is a quick fix. There's there's definitely going to be some barriers. Right. And uh, as far as the assistive technology in the home environment, what would you recommend uh, for getting that together and uh, setting up an area for that? Uh, well, certainly I would recommend the same the same strategy. And especially when we're talking about new technology, if if we're thinking about things like iPads or even computers, to to again be very clear. You know, we, many of us have iPads and tablets and computers and other similar devices in our homes for fun and recreation. So we have iPads with fun games on them, or we have our phones with fun stuff on it and our computers with lots of fun places to go and do some fun things. But if we are implementing the device at home to support education, we need to be very clear with our kids that there will be times when this is the task at hand on this device. Mm -hmm. And whether we use a timer or a location in our house where we know when we're, when we're sitting at the kitchen counter and that's the homework spot and I'm on my iPad to do that, that's what I'm doing is my homework, not my games. If I'm doing my games, then maybe I go into the living room or the recre- recreational area of the house so that it's very clear to the child that these are very separate tasks and activities. And then I always suggest, if at all possible, especially if kids are using the technology to support their education, which, as I said, the work is still the work, have other family members using similar or the same technology for the same purpose. So they're not the only one who has to, um, you know, sit at the kitchen counter. Everybody else is on their iPad, but they're playing Angry Birds, and I'm the only one who has to be doing, you know, my math problems on it. Right. Uh, let's, Let's all do work-related tasks on it so that not only is that child not the only one, but they, we all surrounding that child get an understanding of how easy or difficult doing that task in that way can be for that child. Right. 
So if nothing else, it should be um, if you've got children that are different ages, then it's just it should be homework time and everyone's doing their homework. Yes, absolutely. Right. Yeah, and obviously parental supervision is necessary. Absolutely necessary, and uh, it makes it one of the more difficult uh, areas to implement. This is both at school and at home. Uh, Because technology, computers and tablets and other devices are, they seem intuitive, so we think we're, you know what, we'll just set them up on the iPad and then I can go about my evening, make dinner, and take care of the other tasks around the house. And yet, if that child does accidentally end up in the wrong spot or they need some help or some support or some direction, we certainly want to be supervising that. And the same is true in school. It does make it difficult to implement technology in a school environment sometimes. If it's in a classroom and there are 20-some students in there with just a teacher or maybe a teacher and one other adult for part of the day, that level of supervision can be very difficult to, to manage. And families are the same. You know, we've got lots of stuff going on in in our houses, and keeping an eye on that student using that device or helping with some of the training for him about how, to, as you mentioned, the voice dictation, how to be more effective with that, that, that requires some one-on-one time. And then to help uh, utilize uh, the most effective uh, time as far as getting in there, um, you recommended like a, a timer to work on things. Is there are there any other ideas as far as um, you know getting uh, making sure that the parents and the kids are both getting the most out of the technology as they're doing it? It is helpful to uh, it's another place to get some input from the child. So give them some choices about when this is going to happen. You know, my as a parent, my structure might be you know what. We're going to come home from school. We're going to get right to work and get all of that stuff done, and then we'll have time to play or play around with the device or do some other non-school-related activities. But for many of our kids who really are working extra hard at school, maybe struggling at school, when they come home, that might not be the best time of day for them, even if it's on a fun device. We might have more battles about gaming as opposed to being productive. So giving the child some choice. We can set up homework time right after school, or you can have an hour of other time, whatever that's determined to be, and then we're going to spend this amount of time on schoolwork. Giving them a choice in that is, is of course, certainly essential. And then limiting the amount of time. I always suggest short spurts frequently, not long stretches. So even if it's fun technology, it's still homework. I would rather, or if it's keyboarding practice on a computer or an iPad, I would rather have 10 minutes twice a day, so let's do 10 minutes after school and 10 minutes after dinner, than 20 or 30 minutes all at once. Um, I'd rather have 20 minutes all at once than uh, twice a week for an hour because especially if it's something new that I'm learning or it's a struggle, shorter bursts are much better than long stretches. Uh, And then always using that if-then process, okay? If we set the timer and you spend 10 minutes on this or 20 minutes on this, then let them choose what the then is. Then I get to play my video game or go outside and play, uh, you know, do something, you know, talk on the phone with my friends. Let them choose that process. And we often, even with our older kids, often recommend 
having that visually displayed out somewhere, wherever that homework area is in your house. Have a visual schedule. Have a picture of whatever you have to do that's work-related on your device, and then a picture of whatever the fun thing is. Even if I can read and I don't necessarily think I need that visual, we all need that visual. Right. So that can be really helpful to keep kids on task as well. Um, now, is there a, a good resource online for parents as far as, and educators as well, as far as finding out about what's available for assistive technology and the various educational needs? There are. There's a couple of places that I always recommend first. One is every state has an assistive technology state project, and that is a federally mandated project uh, funded through IDEA legislation. In Michigan, where we are, it's called MITS, M-I-T-S, and they have a very nice website. They have information, resources, online trainings, webinars, tutorials, all of that kind of uh, information there. They have a very extensive lending library, which most states do, so that uh, items can be loaned out. They do get loaned out through an educator, but assistive technology legislation does require us to provide AT solutions in all environments if it's been determined to be necessary by the IEP team. So I always suggest that people go to their state projects. There are great resources and people with knowledge there. Uh, One of the national sites that I use a lot as well as recommend that educators and parents use is called the Family Center on Technology and Disability. And their website is just their acronym, uh, FCTD. And they have loads of resources in very user-friendly language. Uh, They also have information just in general about assistive technology. They have iPad and app information there. Uh, They have local resource links there, other sites to connect out to. They have articles and information about why you would use certain devices and tools in in different situations. And it's it's run... uh, kind of like a blog or a newsletter in that they update and put new information on there on a very regular basis. So there's always new things to to read about there. And then the two others that I go to quite frequently, one is called abledata.com, and the other one is called assistivetech.net. And they both also have lots of resources, both about specific tools and devices as well as just general information. And we have links to all those websites up on the page for this podcast on specialparentsconfidential.com so that people can find everything you're talking about. In fact, even while they're listening to this, they can just go right there and there it all is. Ah, that'd be wonderful. Is there any last advice or tips that you can offer to parents for getting integrated in assistive technology? And uh, for that matter, educators possibly who might be listening and wondering how in the world they're going to make all this happen in their classrooms. Sure. Um, I'm going to kind of circle back to my initial comments. In everyone's local community, there are people who know quite a lot about assistive technology. Sometimes they're a little bit hard to track down. I always recommend that people go to, uh, if, if they have a child in special education, go to their special ed director and ask who the local resources for assistive technology are. Often within that very district, there will be someone or a team of people and if the district doesn't have that, the local ISD or regional educational center will have that. And in many cases, as, as is true with our location, our ISD, I 
host a website as well, and there are lots of resources there. And I am a direct connection to parents who might have questions or aren't sure who in their local district is the contact person. So I, I always encourage parents to start close to home, find those people who are your local resource, and then branch out a little bit from there. And I, I really encourage parents to be good advocates for assistive technology. Our educators, and this is, this is nationally, uh, because educators have so much information coming at them, they, they are, assistive technology is not often on the radar. And even though there is a location on every IEP that asks the question about whether assistive technology has been considered for this child, educators aren't often sure what that means. Right. So nothing wrong with the parent knowing a little bit more about that than their teacher or their therapist and bringing some information back to the team. Uh, I always tell parents, sometimes parents will say to me, well, how come my school doesn't know about this? Well, they will know about it as soon as you go tell them. Right. So don't be afraid. I know sometimes parents are intimidated by that process of, you know, they don't want to be a sort of a know-it-all with the teacher and the, and the therapist and the special ed director in their local place, but it's we all need to learn from each other or there's just too much to keep track of. Right. And speaking of too much to keep track of, I can imagine another uh, possible suggestion would be uh, don't automatically run right out and buy an iPad and think that's going to solve everything. Absolutely not. <laughs> and uh, we, we've seen that in many cases now. If if the family wants an iPad, no matter what, that's one thing. But if you buy it for a specific purpose, and speaking of, of lending libraries, uh, you know, states have lending libraries. There are iPads in those lending libraries. Our local lending library has iPads in it. So we encourage people to even that level of a device, which does not seem assistive necessarily, right. borrow it, try it. See if it's going to meet the needs. Go through a good decision-making process and have some conversations with the team about the needs, what we know about the student, where are these concerns uh, arising, what, what, what's the environment for that, and, and then try it. Uh, even if you think it's the wrong device, sometimes trying is a good way to really hone in on what would the right device be. Right. And I, and like you say, it, it's really got to be a partnership between both the parents and the educators to make sure that the technology is the right technology and that it's being used in the right way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we are uh, big proponents, this is across the world of assistive technology, of keeping a little bit of data. So if we are trying something with a student, an iPad, for example, and that iPad is also being used in the home environment, we have the educators keep little checklists about when it's being used, what it's being used for, the success or level of independence with that task. We we ask families and students to keep data at home as well. We need to know, is that working in that environment? And and if it's not working, why? So the, the data collection in both environments and working together as a, as a total team is really important as well. Well, thanks so much for talking with us, Kindy. It's been very informative, and I think you've probably helped a lot of people listening to this podcast with some great ideas for making the right technology decisions for their kids. Well, I'm happy to help out. It's a, it's a fun area. There are lots of terrific solutions for kids, and the, the more information we have, the better. Again, our guest was Kindy Segovia, the Assistive Technology Coordinator for the Kent Intermediate School District of West Michigan. As we mentioned, we have links for all the websites that Kindy spoke about in the podcast available on our website, specialparentsconfidential.com. 
Additionally, Kindy offers a weekly email newsletter about assistive technology, both apps and devices, that she finds useful for various special education needs. It's a free newsletter, and you don't have to be a resident of the Kent Intermediate School District or even the state of Michigan in order to sign up. Anyone can join her email newsletter list, and we have instructions on how you can do just that on our website as well. And this has been Episode 5 of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.